Okay, well, let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer today, and then you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 27. The Lord be with you. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, who has vouchsafed us the rich and precious jewel of thy holy word, to reform us, to renew us according to thine own image, to build us up into the perfect building of thy Christ, and to increase us in all heavenly virtues. Grant this, O Heavenly Father, for the same Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. We had some technological difficulties uh, the last time that we gathered. Hopefully, we are not going to have those problems again, but we'll do our best to make our way through. Open your Bibles, as I said, to Matthew chapter 27. Let's go ahead and read through the first 10 verses. We may get beyond this, but um, this is what we're going to take a look at as we begin today. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it is not lawful to put them into the treasury since this is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field, a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel. And they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed them. It seems a little strange for us at this particular point in the year to be studying the final events in Jesus' life and ministry. Because, of course, this is the season of Advent. It is a time when we are preparing to celebrate the Lord's arrival. It's a time in which we prepare for the commemoration of his first coming when he was born in great humility in Bethlehem of Judea. And it's also a time in which we prepare our hearts and our minds for the return of the Son of Man in glory at the end of the age when he will judge the quick and the dead. And yet here we are at this point in our study of Matthew's gospel studying the final things, the death of Jesus Christ, his arrest, his death, and his ultimate burial and resurrection. So it may seem a little odd, but one of the things we have to remember is that there really is a direct connection between Bethlehem and Jerusalem. In fact, one scholar has said the real significance of Bethlehem is that it is the first step on the road that leads to the cross. Bethlehem is the first step on the road that ultimately will take us to Calvary. We must never forget that Jesus Christ was born for an express purpose. We can't get bogged down in sentimentality and think about the little baby in the manger. All of that is very important, and we don't want to downplay it, but we must never forget that that baby was born for a specific purpose. He was born for the express purpose of mounting the arms of the cross and dying for us men and for our salvation. This is what the Apostle Paul says. He says, at just the right time, 
God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. It's Paul's way of reminding us that Jesus was born for the purpose of dying. So there really is a connection between the event that we are preparing for in this season of Advent and the event we are studying here in Matthew chapter 27, the final events of Jesus' life and ministry. And that is, of course, how Matthew begins this section, this 27th chapter. Uh, he talks about how the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death, and how they led him away and delivered him to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. But what is interesting is that even as Matthew is laying the foundation for us, paving the way for Jesus' journey to the cross, he interrupts his narrative, briefly at least, to tell us the story of Judas Iscariot. Now, we've already been introduced to Judas, but here we are given the final act in Judas's sad drama. We are given a picture of what ultimately happens to this man who had sold Jesus, really, for the price of a common slave. And as we study this 27th chapter of Matthew, and really the chapter that precedes it, one of the things that you will notice is the genius that Matthew expresses in the way that he organizes his material. And Matthew is not just giving us a blow-by-blow -blow account of the events as they actually happen. Now, he is giving that, that, us that. He is presenting us with a, a chronological description of the events, the historical events as they unfolded, but he's doing more than that. Uh, he is also organizing his material in such a way as to impart to us some very powerful spiritual and moral lessons. And that becomes very clear. I pointed out to you last week that what we have here in Matthew chapter 26 and 27 is a series of contrasts, a series of juxtapositions, if you will, that are meant to show us the superiority of Jesus Christ, but also to teach us a number of important lessons for our own lives. Uh, the first juxtaposition that we encountered was the juxtaposition in the previous chapter between Jesus and Peter. Uh, the way that Matthew organizes his material, he shows us that both Jesus and Peter went through a period of questioning, a period of interrogation, but he contrasts the way that Jesus answered and the results and the way Peter answered his interrogation and the results. Uh, you'll recall that Jesus had been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He had been dragged off first to stand trial before Annas, who was the hereditary high priest. But because Annas had no real authority under Roman law, Jesus was then led to the high priest Caiaphas, who at least according to the Romans was the official high priest. And there Jesus went through a mock trial. There were a whole series of questions that were put to him by the Jewish religious leaders, the member of the Sanhedrin, the highest body of authority within Judaism in the first century. Well, you'll recall that Peter also was interrogated. When Jesus was arrested, all of the disciples scattered. They ran away. But Peter, we're told, did follow Jesus. He followed at a distance the whole way to Caiaphas's house. And there at the gate, he encountered a servant who asked him a question. He was interrogated. The question was, are you one of the Galileans? Are you one of Jesus' disciples? And as you know, Peter denied it. And then he was led into the courtyard, and he was asked again, uh, was he one of Jesus' disciples? And he denied it. And then he was actually uh, uh, asked a question by even a slave girl. 
Uh, one of the girls who was serving in the high priest's palace, she asked him, was he one of the Lord's disciples? She recognized that by his accent, he was from Galilee, where Jesus was from. And so she asked the question. And of course, Peter denied it. So both of these men were interrogated. Both of these men offered answers. Jesus offered honestly, Peter dishonestly. And what's also interesting is that both of these men affirm the truthfulness of their testimony by oaths. We said that when Jesus stood before Caiaphas and was being questioned by the members of the ruling council, Caiaphas quickly realized that the situation was slipping out of his control. They were bringing in witnesses, but the witnesses couldn't agree on their testimony. And even though they had already decided beforehand that Jesus had to die, they wanted to at least have these proceedings give the appearance of legality. In order for these proceedings to at least be acceptable to the people who still viewed Jesus as somewhat of a folk hero, it was important that they looked as though they were on the level. And unfortunately, because of that, they began to realize that Jesus was about to escape. As I said, none of the witnesses could agree, so they couldn't bring any kind of substantial charge against the Lord. And it was at that point that Caiaphas did something extremely unusual. He interfered in the trial. Now, this was the one thing that the high priest was not supposed to do. The high priest was supposed to be like the president pro tem of the Senate, the vice president. They only cast the deciding vote if there was a dispute, only if there was some sort of conflict and you had to break the tie, then the high priest would interfere. But Caiaphas could see, certainly see that the situation was slipping away. And he had already determined that Jesus had to die. It was too great a threat to his own position and in his mind to the threat of the nation. And so he interfered and he charged Jesus with the most solemn oath that was available in the first century. He charged him by the living God to answer the question, was he the Messiah? And not just was he the Messiah, but was he the divine Messiah. I pointed out last week that the way that Caiaphas asked that question was most ingenious. If Jesus had simply said he was the Messiah, there wouldn't have been too much trouble because there were many people who claimed to be Messiahs. But what Jesus was claiming was to be a divine Messiah. And in the eyes of the Jews, that was blasphemy and it was punishable by death. It would have been the means by which Caiaphas and the others would have been able to whip the people into a frenzy. And so he charged Jesus with a solemn oath to give the answer, are you the Messiah? Are you the divine Messiah? Are you claiming not to be a son of God, but the son of God? And we're told that Jesus, on the basis of that oath, answered truthfully. Up to that point, he had pretty much been silent. As he's described later on in the Gospels, he was like a lamb who was silent before its shearers. But at that moment, Jesus answered honestly. He said, it is true. Well, Peter was also interrogated, and he also affirmed the truthfulness of his testimony on the basis of an oath. We're told that when the little girl asked him, are you one of the disciples, he called down a curse, an oath on his own head. He said, I swear to God, I do not know the man. 
So you see what Matthew's doing. He's, he's contrasting these two individuals faced with similar circumstances, but how they react in totally different ways. It's a reminder to us that Jesus alone was capable of paying the price for sin. Peter couldn't do it. Andrew couldn't do it. Bartholomew couldn't do it. James, John, none of the others could do it. Only Jesus was capable of seeing this thing through to the end. Well, when we turn to Matthew chapter 27, we come to a similar contrast, a similar juxtaposition, except that this time the juxtaposition is between Peter and Judas. Last week, we noted the fact that Peter and Judas were really guilty of similar crimes, similar sins against the Son of Man. Peter had denied Jesus three times, and we noted that that was a serious sin. Roman Catholics would probably refer to that as a mortal sin. It was a sin that put his very soul in danger. Jesus himself had said, whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. And whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Well, that is exactly what Peter had done. He had denied Christ before men. And he had done it not just once, he had done it three times. Once, as I said to a little girl, calling down this oath, this solemn curse upon his own head. So we need to understand that what Peter did was a very serious offense. It put his soul in mortal danger. In this sense, what he did was no different and no worse, really, than what Judas had done when Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. The two offenses were equal in their severity and equal in terms of sin before the eyes of Almighty God. So both of these men sinned. Both of these men fell. And yet the scriptures make it very clear that one of these men fell permanently, and one of these men fell temporarily. Peter, of course, did not fall away from Christ completely. Ultimately, he was restored to fellowship with Christ. Following the resurrection, Jesus met him up there by the Sea of Galilee, and as they sat around a fire, Jesus asked the question, Peter, do you love me? In fact, he asked that question three times. Just as Peter had denied him three times, Jesus restored Peter three times with a similar series of questions. And it wasn't just that Peter was restored to the apostolic fellowship. It wasn't just that he didn't lose his salvation. He was restored to the grace and mercy of God. He was also restored, and I find this to be the most extraordinary thing of all, he was restored to leadership. As grievous as his offense was, God's grace was greater than his sin. And he was ultimately restored to leadership. You turn a few pages in your Bible to the book of Acts when we come to the very first church council, where the apostle Paul and Barnabas are called to Jerusalem to give an account of their ministry among the Gentiles. And we're told the one who was presiding over that very first church council was Peter. Peter had become the leader of the apostles. Jesus' words to him up there at Caesarea had been fulfilled. He became the rock upon which Christ would establish and build 
his church. But what of Judas Iscariot? Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, and the scripture indicates to us that he was lost forever. Now, somebody might say that that seems to be a little presumptuous to assume that Judas Iscariot was lost forever, but that's exactly what Jesus himself said. Jesus said it would have been better if this man had never been born. On one occasion, Jesus said, Judas has gone to that place that he deserves. And that can only mean one thing. That is to say that Judas was lost. His soul perished for eternity. And so you can't help but ask your question, well, if if they were guilty of precisely the same offense, if there was no real difference in terms of severity between what Peter did and what Judas did, why was it that Peter fell temporarily and Judas fell eternally? What was it that was different about Judas. Well, I think Matthew gives us an indication here in this 27th chapter in verse 3. We read these words, then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. The key word here is, or phrase, is he changed his mind. Now, normally, the word that is translated as change of mind, we oftentimes translate it into English as repent, is the Greek word metanoio. And that's literally what it means. It means to have a change of mind. But a change of mind that results in a change of heart, and a change of heart that ultimately results in a change of behavior. That's really what the word repent means. It means to turn. It means to do a 180. But it means to have your mind change. You you gain a whole new perspective on things. And that new perspective, that new worldview, ultimately affects the way that you operate. Changes your heart, your affections, and it ultimately changes your direction in life. So we've been asking the question, what was the difference then between Judas and what was the difference between Peter? I mean, obviously, they had been guilty of the same offense, and yet one fell permanently and one did not. I think the real difference here is the difference between remorse and repentance. It's one thing to be sorry. It's another thing merely to acknowledge. Uh, We make this point every time we say the confession of sin in the right one liturgy. And incidentally, I know you know that I have a prejudice toward the right one liturgy over right two. I I have a tendency to think that right two is Christianity light. Um, I like right one because there's a robust theology there. And you can see this in particular when you contrast the confession of sin in the right two liturgy and the right one liturgy. The right two liturgy sort of comes across as, well, we're sorry for what we've done. We acknowledge that and uh, we'd like to move on. But in the right one confession of sin, one of the things that we say is that we acknowledge and we do what? We bewail our manifold sins and wickedness. Now, acknowledging is one thing. Bewailing is something very different. I sometimes say that a child who gets his hand caught in the cookie jar may acknowledge that he had done wrong. But that doesn't necessarily mean that he is sorry for doing it. 
I said on one occasion in another Bible study that there was a point in my life when I was a teenager, and I had been instructed by my father not to go to a certain place and not to hang out with a certain group. And uh, I knew that I shouldn't go, but the temptation was so great and my desire was so great that I went ahead and did it. Well, my father found out about it and I faced a severe punishment. I'll never forget it. He brought me into the room. He was so frustrating. He was just seething with anger. He sat me down on the piano bench and he just let me have it. I think for about 25 minutes, he just lectured me and he took away every privilege that I had. And then he parted with these final words. He said, now you go into your room and you think about what you've done and you ask yourself, was it worth it? And I remember leaving the room, closing the door and turning around. He couldn't see me, of course, and thinking to myself and saying out loud, worth it. That's acknowledging, my friends, that is not bewailing True repentance, that change of mind that results in a change of heart and in a change of direction, involves both of those things. We need to acknowledge that what we have done is wrong, and we have to be truly sorry for it. Judas's confession was inadequate. Judas admitted that he was a sinner. Look at verse 4. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. So he acknowledged that he had done what? He had done wrong. Second thing he acknowledges is that Jesus was innocent. Well, that was a step in the right direction. So he acknowledged that he had sinned. He acknowledged the fact that Jesus was innocent. But here's the difference between Peter and Judas. Peter knew that his only hope of forgiveness was to be found in Christ. He knew that his only hope of atonement was to be found in the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There was nothing that Peter could do to make up for what he had done. Judas, on the other hand, in spite of the fact that he had been with Christ for three years, in spite of the fact that he had heard Christ teach about the necessity of going to the cross and dying for the sins of the world to make atonement for the people, Judas was still trying to make atonement for himself. Judas was still trying to atone for his own sin. That's what he was doing when he went back to the priests and he tried to hand the 30 pieces of silver back. He was trying to make up for what he had done. What that tells us is that Judas had never really understood or come to terms with the message of the gospel. Namely, that you and I cannot save ourselves. We cannot wash the defilements from our lives. We have no means. As the prayer book says, we have no power in and of ourselves to help ourselves. Listen, if you're going to be a Christian, if you really want to understand the Christian gospel, that's the first thing you need to understand, that you have no power in and of yourselves. You cannot trust yourself even in your best moment. There's an old Baptist hymn. We don't have it in our hymnal, but it's a wonderful old hymn. And it has this stanza in it. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. 
If you're a fan of William Shakespeare, you know the story of Lady Macbeth and her husband, how they had killed a man and of how they were haunted by the memory of this. Every time Lady Macbeth looked at her hands, she saw the stain of the blood. Try as she might, she could not wash that stain away. Out, out, damn spot, she said, but she could not get rid of it. There was nothing she could do, nothing to atone for what had already been done. Robert Herrick was a contemporary of William Shakespeare, and he wrote a little poem that expresses this so well. He said, Lord, I confess that thou alone art able to purify this my Augean stable. Be the sea's water and the land all soap, yet if thy blood not wash me, there is no hope. It's interesting to me that Herrick compares his heart to an Augean stable. If you remember the ancient story of Hercules, you'll remember that King Augeas had given Hercules the responsibility of cleaning out his stables, which were filthy stables. It was an enormous task. How in the world was Hercules going to do it? And what Hercules had to do was he had to reroute a river through those stables to cleanse them. And that's the way Herrick describes his own heart. My friends, Christ will never, ever be precious to you until you see yourself in the light of eternity, until you see your heart, your life, your soul, your spirit, your mind, your very desires as an Augean stable. And you have not the strength of Hercules to purify it, but there is one who can. As many of you know, one of my favorite hymns is there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. Peter understood that. And that was the difference between Peter and Judas. Judas felt that he had atoned for himself and because he could not do it, like Lady Macbeth, he could not wash the stain clean. And so his sorrow turned to despair. Peter's sorrow turned to repentance. He turned from his sin, he turned to Jesus Christ, and he placed his whole trust in the mercy and the grace of God, and that is what made all the difference. Is that true in your life? Listen, folks, we have all done things that we regret. We have all done things for which we are sorrow. We have all done things of which we are ashamed. But are you trying to atone for your own sins? Are you trying to save yourself? Or are you turning to the only one who has the power to wash you whiter than snow? That was the difference. Some years ago, Johnny Hart who was the author of the BC comic strip. Uh, that was one of the longest running comic strips in history. It was founded in uh, 1957 is when it was launched. In 1984, Johnny Hart, the, auth the um, artist, actually had a radical conversion experience. And toward the end of his life, I think he died in 2007, more and more of his cartoons became religious in nature. And this is my favorite. I've actually got a copy of this hanging in my office. This was his Easter 
cartoon. In fact, he became so overt in his religious messages in his cartoons that a number of newspapers refused to publish them. And this is one of them. Uh, you can see it. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. Here's a picture. You have these two people. Of course, BC is set um, in the caveman age. You have this man who has eaten from a tree with fruit on it, and he has stained his garment. He says, Drat, I just got fruit juice all over my suit. And his wife says, take it off and I'll rinse it out. And he says, what, and be naked? Just like Adam and Eve, you see. And she says, just go behind that rock, silly. And he goes behind the rock and she goes down into the river and tries to wash his garment clean. But as she is doing this, you can see coming from the right side of the scene, there is this crimson tide. There is something that is polluting the water. And it's going to make the garment even worse than it was. And yet when she pulls up his garment, she notices that this crimson tide has washed it white as snow. And not just washed his garment white as snow, but her garment as well. And in the final scene, there they are, husband and wife, looking up to see where this crimson tide has come down, this pollution that has filled the river. And what they see is that that crimson tide flows from a hill on which there stands a cross. Now, my friends, that is the gospel in some. There it is. Try as we might, you and I cannot wash our lives clean. And as long as you think you can, as long as you think that you can somehow atone for your sins, atone for your misdeeds, make yourself acceptable to God, let me tell you something, you are in as grave and as serious a danger as Judas Iscariot himself. Because what that means is that you have robbed the cross of Jesus Christ of its power. What you're saying is, I don't need a Savior. I'll do it myself. That's what Judas did. And when he realized that he could not do it, instead of turning to Jesus Christ for mercy, grace, and forgiveness, he went out in despair and he ended his life and he was lost forever. Oh, my friends, there is mercy and there is pardon in Jesus Christ. We should never, never despair you can never, I want you to understand this, there is nothing you have done, nothing you will ever do that Christ is not capable of forgiving. There is no stain on your life that he is not capable, his love and his grace and his blood is not capable of washing away. Charles Haddon Spurgeon once said, it makes no difference how great the sinner may be. Make him out to be an elephantine sinner, he said. And there is still room in the ark of Jesus Christ, even for the vilest of the vile. That's the good news, my friends. Peter understood it. Judas did not. Now, that, of course, is the most important lesson that we can learn from Judas Iscariot. But there are a number of other lessons. We've already alluded to some of these in previous lectures. But we need to go ahead and repeat some of them and look at some new ones. What are the lessons we are expected to learn from the life of Judas Iscariot? Matthew records this, as I said, not simply 
as a chronological record of what happened in these final days of Jesus' life, but he records these events for our benefit. John makes that point very clear in his gospel. He said, Jesus did many other things that are not recorded in this book, but these are recorded that you may know that Jesus is the Christ and that you may have life in his name. So when Matthew and John and Mark and Luke record these events, they are recording them, yes, for historical reasons, but also that you and I might learn from them. And one of the lessons we learn from Judas Iscariot is that, my friends, proximity to Christ is not enough. It's not enough to be a religious person. Judas Iscariot lived in close proximity to Jesus Christ for three years. He sat under the teaching of the greatest teacher the world has ever known. He witnessed some of the greatest miracles in all of history. And yes, in spite of his proximity to Christ, he missed the heart of the gospel. And there are many people like that today. They may have been raised in the church. They may have gone through the rites and ceremonies of the church. They may have been confirmed at the hands of a bishop. They may have been baptized in a font that goes back to the 17th century or the 18th century. But in spite of their close proximity to religious matters, they have never really heard the gospel. They may have been churched, but they've never been converted. They've never understood that they are sinners in need of a Savior, and they cannot atone for their own sin. Second thing we learn from Judas Iscariot is that you're never going to find help in wicked people. Judas Iscariot had conspired with the priests in order to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And when he realized what he had done and the gravity of the situation, he did indeed show remorse. He was sorrowful. And he went back and he tried to undo it. He went back to the temple precincts and he told the priests that he had sinned, that he had betrayed innocent blood, and he wanted to return the money. He wanted to do the right thing. But look at their response. Verse 3, then when Judas's betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said what? Well, you would expect them, religious people, to say, that's right, you've done the right thing. If you realize you've done wrong, good for you. It's not too late to undo it. But instead, what did they say? They said, what is that to us? They weren't the least bit concerned about Judas and his beleaguered conscience. They could care less. He was simply a pawn. And let me tell you something. That's the way it generally is with wicked people. If you were living in the company of those who are at odds with God, understand they will have no great affection for you in your time of need. Here's the third thing we learn from Judas Iscariot, and that is this. If you engage in sin, it never stops with just one. It's like smoking cigarettes. You just can't stop with one. Once you get addicted, you, it, it's impossible almost to break that cycle. And that's the way it was for Judas Iscariot. Sin is a dangerous spiral. There's no such thing as a little sin. Keep your finger there in Matthew, if you will, and turn to Romans for just a moment. Paul's great epistle. 
And what Paul describes there in that first chapter is this downhill spiral, the fact that, that one sin always adds to another. It's compound interest, if you will. And Paul does this in a very dramatic way, and we can see it. It's a description, really, of our culture, but it's a description also of what happens to individuals. Because what is a culture but the story of individuals written in large? So here's what Paul says, beginning at verse 18 of Romans chapter 1. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Here's the first thing Paul tells us in Romans 1.18, namely that the wrath of God is being revealed against mankind. Now understand that when Paul talks about wrath, Paul's not talking about something akin to human anger. I think when we think of anger or God's anger, we have a tendency to think of somebody who is not in control, somebody who lashes out, somebody who loses their temper. When the scripture talks about the wrath of God, it's not talking about God's anger in that sense. The wrath of God is simply an extension of God's righteousness. I've sometimes described it as an allergic reaction. There are some people, for example, who simply cannot tolerate gluten, or there are some people that cannot tolerate eggs or um, lactose, whatever it may be, and they have an automatic reaction to it. That's what the wrath of God is like. His righteousness is such that whenever he comes into contact with impurity, with sin, his wrath is enraged. And that's what Paul is describing. He says the wrath of God. God has come into contact with what? All the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, and his wrath is enraged. But look at what he goes on to say. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. The problem, Paul says in verse 18, is not that human beings are ignorant of the truth. He says they have full knowledge of the truth. The problem, he says, is that they suppress the truth. It is an active, an active suppression of the truth. He goes on to say this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that men are without excuse. He's saying people cannot say there is no God. He says evidence of God is all around them. God's signature is written across the entire created order. No, what men have done is that not, they are not ignorant of the truth. The problem is that they have denied the truth. They have actively suppressed the truth about God. He goes on to say, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Here you begin to see the downhill spiral that I've been talking about. The first thing that mankind does is they suppress the truth. The truth about God is plain to them by the things that have been made, God's signature written across the created order, but men suppress the truth. They refuse to acknowledge it. Just like the Pharisees refused to acknowledge Jesus in spite of the fact that their hearts were convinced that he really was the Messiah. Remember what Nicodemus said in John chapter 3, speaking for the Sanhedrin, he said, we know that you are a man who has come from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. They knew, and yet they suppressed the truth. But what happens when you suppress the truth? 
You start on this downhill path. All of a sudden, your thinking becomes futile and your hearts become darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And because they're futile in their thinking, foolish in their hearts, they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, they began to worship the creation rather than the creator. Now, you can see that so clearly in our culture today. People refuse to acknowledge God, his authority, his sovereignty over the world, and so they begin to worship what? Created things. They begin to worship money. They begin to worship the creation itself. They begin to worship themselves. Therefore, what happens? Here's the next stage in that downhill spiral. Therefore, God gave them up. This is actually the language of a prisoner exchange. God simply hands them over. It's been said that God says two things to a human being. God says, you can have it my way, or he says, you can have it your way. Here's a picture of what happens when we insist upon having it our way. God eventually lets us have it. He gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil. I think that's a particularly damning description, inventors of evil. They're not satisfied with the evil that is evident. They have to create new ways of doing evil. They are slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to their parents. They are foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they do not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. As the scripture says elsewhere, they glory in their shame. Folks, if we're honest, this is a description of American culture today. It's the description of a culture which knows the truth about God but suppresses that truth and exchanges the truth of God for a lie. It's a culture whose minds have become darkened whose hearts have become hardened. And it's a picture of a culture that God has given up to do what ought not to be done, to follow our own devices, our own desires, and it's a downhill spiral that leads to disaster. And what is true of a culture is true of individuals. That's what we see happening in the life of Judas Iscariot. You see this downhill spiral. One of the things that John tells us about Judas was that he was greedy. 
greedy for money, greedy for power, greedy for position. And when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, I'm sure that Judas was with the rest shouting, Hosanna in the highest. Finally, the Messiah was going to come and drive out the Romans. But over the course of the preceding or the, the following days, one of the things that Judas began to realize that Jesus had come to be the king, but not the king who would be lifted up upon a cross or on a throne, but on a cross. And that is not what Judas had bargained for. The betrayer felt betrayed. He became resentful toward Jesus. He decided at some point in the course of that week that if Jesus was not going to fulfill his expectations of what the Messiah should be, then he needed to get rid of Jesus. And so he did. He betrayed him for 30 pieces of silver. But then with what little conscience he had left, he went back and tried to atone for his own sin, but it was too little, it was too late. And in the end, he despaired. And he went out and he hanged himself. And he was lost forever. That is what happens to all of us, my friends, when we fail to acknowledge our sin and fail to acknowledge the fact that there's only one who can save us. Now, as I said, Judas is given to us here in Matthew's gospel as an example. We are to learn from Judas Iscariot. But I'm happy to say the scripture doesn't leave us with just a negative example. There are many examples in scripture of people who did better than Judas. Peter is one that we've already looked at, but there are others. I think about King David in the Old Testament. David, as you know, was a man who was described as being after God's own heart. What was David? David was an adulterer. David was a murderer. He committed adultery with Bathsheba. And then in an effort to cover it up so that there wouldn't be some sort of a crisis, some sort of a scandal, he did what? He killed her husband. Now that is hardly godly behavior. Those are two grievous sins, adultery, betrayal, and then murder. And yet David is described as a man after God's own heart. How in the world can that be? Well, the answer is found in what happened to David. If you know the story, David thought that he had escaped notice. But God sent his prophet to confront David. And when David was confronted with his sin, when he could no longer hide from it, when he acknowledged it, he went on to do the second thing. He went on to bewail it. He realized that there was only one hope for him, and it was not going to be found in any attempt on his own to atone. He had to turn to God and the promise of God's salvation in Jesus Christ. Turn, if you will, to Psalm 51. Psalm 51 is one of the greatest pieces of scripture, in my opinion. And if you're at a point in your life when you are overwhelmed with a sense of guilt or a sense of shame for something that you've done, and perhaps for years you've been trying to atone for it and nothing seems to work, Psalm 51 is the answer to what's ailing you. Psalm 51, if yours is a study Bible like mine, it's described as to the choir master, a Psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. So David has been confronted with his sin by the prophet Nathan. He's been reminded that even though no one else 
knew about this great misdeed. There is one unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and the one from whom no secrets are hid. And David is confronted with this, and this is his response. Listen to these words. They're extraordinary words. David falls on his knees and he says, have mercy on me, O Lord, according to your steadfast love. It's really interesting. David doesn't try to rehearse all of the other things that he had done that were righteous deeds. In other words, he doesn't try to say, oh, yes, Lord, I've, I've really blown it this time. But, you know, on the whole, I've lived a pretty good life. He doesn't try to make excuses at all. What does he do? He cries for mercy. He says, have mercy on me, O God, according to what? According to your steadfast love. That's the basis of his hope. Not his own goodness, not his own greatness, not his own efforts to atone. His hope is found in God's mercy and God's steadfast love. He says, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sins. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. He acknowledges it. That's the first thing you and I must do. We've got to name the sin. He says, I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. Then he goes on to say this. He says, against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, there is a sense in which what David had done was not just a sin against God. It was a sin against Bathsheba. It was a sin against Uriah, her husband. It was a sin against the trust of the nation because he was the sovereign. But in an ultimate sense, David is right. All sin ultimately is a violation of God's law, and therefore it is an offense against the Almighty. And look at what he says. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He acknowledges that what he has done is evil. That's one of the reasons, again, why I love that wonderful confession of sin. And right one, we acknowledge and bewail our what? Our manifold sins and wickedness. Most of the time, people think that they are wicked because they sin. Actually, what that confession teaches us is that we sin because we're wicked. The problem is with our hearts. It's out of our hearts that these evil desires come. And so David acknowledges that. He says, against you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you are justified in your words, you're blameless in your judgment. David says, Lord, if you were to turn me into a cinder right now, you would be perfectly justified in doing so. No one could bring any fault to you. And then he says this, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He's saying, look, I'm OS positive. I was born this way. But then in verse 7, he adds these words. He says, purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. The key word in that particular verse, verse 7, is the word hyssop. He says, purge me with hyssop. What does that mean? Hyssop is a plant. What does he mean, purge me with hyssop? How can you be purged with a plant? The hyssop branch was the branch that was used on the Day of Atonement. When sacrifice was made for sin, the high priest would go in and take a hyssop branch, and he would dip that in the blood, 
And then he would come out in the presence of people. And with that hyssop branch, he would scatter that blood on the people in the same way that we sometimes do with holy water. So what David is acknowledging centuries before Christ ever arrived on the scene was that his only hope of being made clean was to be purged with blood. The blood of that immaculate lamb that was to be slain before the foundations of the world. Wash me with that hyssop. Wash me with that blood, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Verse 10, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. In other words, if there was something that I could do, I would, but there is nothing that I can do. You will not be pleased with all of my efforts, a burnt offering. The sacrifices acceptable to God are what? A broken spirit and a contrite heart. My friends, that's the hope of salvation. That's what Peter had. He acknowledged, he bewailed his manifold sins and wickedness, and he turned to the only one who could wash him whiter than snow. If only Judas had done that, he would be numbered among the saints in heaven. But his pride got in the way, and the pride often gets in the way for us as well. There's one final example that we are given in Scripture that I'll bring your attention to today. There are others, but just one more to bring to your attention, and it's one that Jesus himself gives. It's the example of the prodigal son in Jesus' parable. That was a son who had sinned against his father. He demanded his inheritance. Now, understand that in the first century, in Middle Eastern culture, to demand your inheritance was against the law. You could only receive your inheritance when your father died. So when this young man went to his father and demanded, demanded his inheritance, what he was basically saying to his father was, I wish you were dead. And his father knew that it was a mistake to give the boy the inheritance, but he did what? He gave him up. He gave him up to do his own thing. And the boy started on that downhill spiral. We're told he went off into a distant country, and he squandered that on loose living. I don't need to describe for you what loose living looks like. Most of us know very well what that is. And he lost it all. And he descended to a very low point. We're told that he ended up living with pigs and longing for the pods on which the pigs were eating. Now, remember, this is a first-century Jewish context. Pigs were unclean. This is Jesus' way of saying this man was so far down that when he looked up, he still saw bottom. But then he had a change of mind, a change of mind that ultimately led to a change of direction and a change of direction that ultimately led to a change of heart. He said, this is what I will do. I would be better back in my father's house as a servant than here eating these feeding these pigs and eating their pods. And so he says, I will go back to my father and I will say to my father, I have sinned and I'm no more worthy to be called your son. Make me a servant. And that's what he does. And he goes back 
And what's the reaction of the father when the father sees that prodigal coming back? Well, he could have shut the door in his face, but he doesn't. We're told that he went out and he met the boy on the street and he embraced him and he forgave him and he put a ring on his finger and a mantle about his shoulders and he killed the fatted calf. That's what Peter experienced up there by the Sea of Galilee. He said, I will go back and I will say to my father, I am not worthy to be your son. Make me a servant. And what he found was a welcome and a restoration. And my friends, the same is true for you. We need to acknowledge and we need to bewail our manifold sins. We need to recognize that we are not good people. Do not think for one minute. This is one of the great messages of the scripture. Our world would have us believe that people are basically good. The scripture says we are basically evil. Jesus entrusted himself to no man. Why? Because he knew what was in the heart of men. No, the great message is that God loves us in spite of that. And if we acknowledge, and if we bewail, and if we stop trying to make atonement for our own sins, and we simply acknowledge the fact that we've sinned, and we come back, and we are truly sorry, what we will find is what Peter found. What we will find is what the prodigal found. What we will find is what David found, mercy, grace, and pardon. For there is forgiveness in the blood of the Lamb. That's our only hope, my friends. And yet what a hope it is. It was for this purpose that that baby was born in Bethlehem. That 33 years later, he might mount the arms of the cross and save sinners like you and me. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for these examples, the example of Judas Iscariot and the example of the Apostle Peter. Both of these men were guilty of grievous sins. Both of these men betrayed you, sold you out. And yet one realized that there is a wideness in your mercy like the wideness of the sea. And acknowledging and bewailing his manifold sins and wickedness, he came back home and found pardon, forgiveness, and acceptance. Grant us the grace to see ourselves as Peter saw himself to stop trying to wash the stain away and to come to that fountain wherein we may all be made clean. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you very much. God bless you. Sorry for that technological difficulty in the middle of the class. We have no power over these things. But um, I'm going to go now and acknowledge and bewail my manifold sins and wickedness after what I said in that time away and uh, find pardon, mercy, and forgiveness. We'll get back together again next week. And it'll probably be our last class um, before the Christmas break. But we're going to take a look at the Roman trial. We're going to take a look at Jesus as he stands before the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Who was Pilate? What was Pilate like? And why did Pilate, a man who had by no means a reputation for being merciful, 
do everything in his power to acquit Jesus. We all know that he didn't do it, but he certainly made several attempts. Why was that? We'll find out next week. God bless you. I look forward to seeing you really soon. Take care.